Welcome to Beyond Prisons. This is Jay. Today we will bring you part one of a two-part conversation with Devin Springer. Devin is an Atlanta-based artist, writer, organizer, and educator with a background in African and African diaspora studies and a concentration in art history. He has worked with various organizing groups in Atlanta such as Rise Up, It's Bigger Than You, Black Lives Matter, and is a member of Workers World Party. He is the assistant editor of two peer-reviewed academic journals, South and ATL. His first book of poetry and art is titled Grayish Black, and you can follow him on Twitter at Half Atlanta and see some of his visual art at UrbanSoulAtlanta.com. For today's portion of Brian and Kim's conversation with Devin, they'll talk about his work trying to improve and build mental health response networks in Atlanta as well as the recent campus police killing of Scout Schultz at Georgia Tech and the student response to it. But before we transition into the discussion, Brian will read Devin's poem, Capitalism. I saw the gears turning, washed as the oil-dirty machinery pumped and steamed, and saw the blood it created every time the clock ticked. I saw old man Washington spin the blood water whiteness cloth into a rope, and I saw him wring it around my brother's neck, then get back to running the machine. I tried to put my hand in there. The machine old man Washington kept running. I tried to stop his machine before it could hurt anyone else, but my arm got stuck and the gears pinched and tugged and pulled and ripped it off and I saw my blood mix in with so many others. I saw a dark red that screamed freedom, and the name of my blood, and the same blue that waterboarded my grandmama and drowned my granddaddy, and I saw that blood water whiteness cloth in old man Washington's hands, and he wrapped it round my neck, and... Welcome. Thank you so much for being here, Devin. I'm really excited to have this conversation today. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. Uh, We're all really excited. You know, you are a pretty busy person. I know you wear a lot of hats. You're an artist, you're a writer, (laughs) and you do a lot of work in the community. Um, And I think maybe that's sort of where I want to kick it off and just start talking about some of your organizing work. You know, I know you do some work with mental health response units in Atlanta. And, you know, there's a lot in terms of police reform right now where there's a focus on increasing mental health training Mm -hmm. and sort of uh, changing the way that police approach mental health crises. I was just wondering if you could just sort of tell us about the work that you do and sort of your thoughts on a better model for mental health support in the community. Yeah, definitely. Um, and let me say thank you for thank you for having me on. I'm very appreciative of the opportunity to chat with y'all. Um, so here in Atlanta, there's been in the past two years a very very big push to get mental health response units that are delinked from the police force as much as possible. Um, and this really started. We started organizing around this about two and a half years ago when a young man named Anthony Hill, he was he was uh, he was diagnosed bipolar and PTSD, and he was having a manic episode. Um, And he was running around his apartment complex completely naked. He was searching for one of his friends. 
And Officer Robert Olson of DeKalb PD um, rolled up and shot him twice on site within about 30 seconds of arriving on the scene. Mm. Um, and Robert Olson is about six foot three. Anthony Hill, who was shot and killed, is he stood only about five foot seven. He was completely unarmed, completely naked, just in, you know, a, a mentally altered state. So that really was the catalyst for a series of protests and organizings and meeting with mayors and officials, uh, shutting down highways and all kinds of public places. And it, it, it led us to launch this investigation through an organization um, called Rise Up Georgia. And we just basically, we hired some professionals and we looked into it and found that around 30 to 40% of all incarcerated people um, deal with some kind of mental illness, whether that be depression, bipolar, anxiety, PTSD, whatever it may be, some form on the spectrum of mental illness incarcerated people deal with. And then other studies show that the victims of police brutality are also largely disproportionately affected by mental illness. So the problem, you know, we, we realize seems to be a lot deeper than just one or two cases. It seems to be this, this, um, policing of mental illness as as police armed officers as the first response to mental right. illness episodes yeah and so what we ended up doing was researching mental health response units and in certain cities like san diego for example they have really great mental health response units where it's trained crisis intervention professionals counselors and psychologists who arrive on the scene without a police officer um who do have police officers on call, but the initial arrival is without an officer who de-escalates situations, whether it be a manic episode or a suicidal episode or whatever it may be. The impl implementation of a non-armed mental health response crisis intervention specialist is essentially what we're pushing for in Atlanta. Could you tell us a little bit more about your experiences, you know, working with the mental health response units, you know, maybe some examples of some of the work that... Mm -hmm that goes into, you know, actually showing up and de-escalating as opposed to when you have, you know, cops leading the charge in those right. situations? Well, I mean, the first is the most obvious. Cops are trained to shoot and kill and to shoot on sight. Um, we see this in almost every single case where there's someone who's having a manic episode or even if it's a small, petty crime that's taking place, nine times out of ten, the officer shoots to kill. So with an unarmed mental health response um, unit, you have counselors and mental health professionals with de-escalation tactics. This can be as simple as noticing the signs of mental illness and being able to do a quick diagnosis of the, the problem that's taking place. So a great example of this is a really good friend of mine who's also an organizer. She has a brother with schizophrenia, and he was having a very bad schizophrenic episode a few months ago, and he, he just went missing. And we were terrified to call the police because he was a black man um, and we had no other resources. And there is one mental health response unit in all of Metro Atlanta, but it's one unit covering about a 70 mile radius of a metro city. So their arrival time on the scene, they told us, was about an hour to an hour and a half, which was extremely insufficient because we know a lot can happen in that time. Right. So, so the, the ideal alternative for a mental health response unit would have, one, been someone who is a mental health professional um, with experience in counseling, crisis intervention, and de-escalation tactics. So when he finally did arrive on the scene, we had found her brother, and he was able to talk him and calm him down, 
recognized the traits as a schizophrenic episode almost immediately um, because because the the response unit had a background in mental health profession um, and was able to just de-escalate the entire situation without the use of a single weapon, no pepper spray, no gun, no taser, no no handcuffs, nothing, and then was able to escort him to a hospital calmly. So the difference is is huge when you consider what happened with Anthony Hill with an officer and what happened with my friend's brother with a de-escalation trained mental health professional. Yeah, and uh, two very different responses to similar situations, right? And mm-hmm. one of the things that, you know, I, I did when I was prepping for this interview was that, you know, I Googled uh, what to do in a mental health crisis. Right, just right. you know, mm-hmm. as if I didn't already know what to do in a mental health crisis. I mean, full disclosure: I have a, a son with a mental illness mm-hmm. who is now incarcerated, and you know, one of the first things that came up was the the website for the county of Santa Cruz. Yeah. And at the top of the site, what it says in bold letters is "Always call nine one one." Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now it's just like. <laughs> Oh, my God. Oh, I'm, like, reading this. And, you know, the thing that's going through my head is that, you know, the idea that the police should be the first responders when someone right. is in crisis really is so deeply ingrained in our thinking, right? That calling mm-hmm. 911 is an automatic response. Like, people don't even stop to think of anything else. Maybe we should try to contain this person. Maybe we should try, you know to get someone that they know right. to come over and talk to them. Um, you know, what are some soothing phrases or words that might work in this situation or, you know, mm-hmm. something. I mean, when the response is that automatic, right, we need something that's going to be completely disruptive to this thought process and, you know, something that challenges the idea that the police should be the first people that you call right. in this situation. And um, as, as Brian, you know, um, hinted at in his, uh, in his question earlier, um, how do we take that model of the mental health response units that you're working with in Atlanta and replicate that um, around the country? I mean, how, how do you envision something like that happening across the country? And are there efforts underway already um, mm-hmm. to make something like that a reality? So to the first part of your statement, I think that most people with mental illness can agree and most therapists will will agree that the threat of violence only exacerbates a mental episode, right? So if you're going through a manic episode and then the threat of violence towards you as the person going through the manic episode occurs, it exacerbates the whole entire situation. So the first step is realizing that an armed officer arriving at a black or brown person's home while they're having a manic or mental episode will only exacerbate the situation. So it's facts like this that are the first step in making this this conversation nationwide, because a lot of people might not even know that the threat of violence exacerbates manic episodes. And to the to the second part of your question, so here in Atlanta, there we uh, I want to say two years ago now we we proposed legislation, um, had several meetings in Atlanta. What they 
was really a band-aid to the problem, not really a solution. What they did was they gave mandatory mental health training to 80% of officers in Atlanta. And while this might sound good, again, these are not mental health professionals. These are still officers mm-hmm. trained to kill who arrive with multiple weapons and exacerbate the situation. So the first step is to understand that the reform of and the use of police is is not the answer, right? Because they're still... Mm-hmm an entity that will exacerbate any situation. The second step is understanding that the resources are already there to create an entirely separate unit. Like in Atlanta, for Mm -hmm. example, police just received last year a multi-million dollar salary increase. Um, This really was just went towards new uniforms, um, new and higher grade weaponry. and, And that's essentially it. So, so the, the next step is to let people understand the resources in most cities and counties already exist to create a mental health response unit in every major county. And what was the, what was the, there was a last part of your question I wanted to hit that I forgot. Oh, um, how do we, or do you have a vision for how we could take this model and replicate it across communities? Um, in this country, um, how can other communities look to Atlanta or San Diego, for example, and say, okay, how do we make this happen here? Okay, yeah, that's right. So, so in in several cities, really the the part of the country that's kind of leading and leading, I use that very um, cautiously because it's still problematically done, but leading the whole mental health response unit implementation is on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. San Diego is just the first one that comes to mind. San Francisco is actually implementing laws in the coming months to try and have their first full mental health response unit. So I think looking at examples that are already there. So we already have, there's a Santa Cruz, San Diego, San Francisco. Um, Atlanta is working on getting our first 2018 That'll be in um, Fulton County, Andy Cab County. So if we already have these implementations taking place across the country, it's then just following example and learning how to make them better and how to implement implement them across across the U.S. Um, so a lot mm-hmm. of times the pushback we get is that it costs too much, which is just bullshit. We have the funds if we're giving millions to local police units and the majority of police officers are helping, you know, like becoming cross guards essentially and doing useless medial jobs 99% of the time, we can definitely reallocate funds. The other question is the militarization of the police in counties Mm -hmm. like Ferguson or even in New York city with the NYPD here in Atlanta, militarization of the police is essentially what costs police departments so much money. It's that they every year want new weaponry um, to police civilians. If you can, change the public perspective around that and understand that the need to protect citizens with unarmed response units is greater than the need to arm officers, then I think we could see like a national shift in the conversation. Yeah. And, you, mm-hmm. and, you know, just to add to that, um, and not at all to say that, that the work of mental health response uh, units and this training is, isn't important because it's incredibly important um, but I just mm-hmm. wonder if you have any thoughts on sort of another part of this, which is, um, you know, with the rise of police militarization, expansion of police forces over the decades, there has been a defunding and dissolution of mental health services in the community, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that this lack of services has shifted 
the burden of mental health services, you know, to prisons and to jails and right. to situations where we have to have units that respond to crises instead of ongoing treatment, you know, that could sort of dissuade these things from happening. And I just, and, you know, on top of that, you know, as we know, the, the largest mental health facilities in the country are jails. Right. Is what I'm basically right. Trying mm-hmm. to and, you know, if we're going to talk about, you know, the cost uh, associated with this, it costs far more to treat mm-hmm. people. Uh, and, and, you know, the treatment isn't really that great, but to treat people behind bars than it would be to treat them in the community. Right. So I just wonder if you have anything to say on, on sort of that part of the equation. Yeah, I mean, so like all functions of white supremacy under capitalism, it's an issue of structural violence, essentially. One of the best examples is, especially here in Atlanta, so the VA, the Veteran Affairs Hospital, we know that majority of, of soldiers, when they come home from frontline war or military personnel, I should say, they endure some form of mental illness, whether it be PTSD, heightened anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. And coinciding with the defunding of the Veteran Affairs Hospitals that have been taking place, we see a rise in mental illness diagnoses taking place in prisons. Um, So I'm not a very patriotic person, but I do understand that this this defunding of the free services and mental health services of the VA has a lot to do with it. And then on top of that, I go every month and um, work with homeless people to build resumes and to, to help try and do like interview coaching with homeless people in Atlanta. And the majority of them are people, normally black and brown people, who have some form of mental illness and who will straight up tell me all the time, I've been in and out of prison or jail 10 times because I can only afford to get my medicine for my schizophrenia or my medicine for my bipolar or depression in jail where it's given to me. So it's this cyclical problem of communities not being able to afford proper treatment and prison becoming the only solution to that. And so I think, mm-hmm. you know, I've I've heard uh, a good friend of mine always says jails are the biggest therapist's office, right? And yeah. that doesn't mean they're the best <laughs> therapist's office. That doesn't mean they should be the biggest therapist's office. That just means that we have a clear problem in the way that people who are classed and raced a certain way receive access for them to, to get help for their mental health. Um, So it's just an issue of structural violence. We also see that increasingly high numbers of people who live in impoverished areas have high diagnoses of mental illness, and it also correlates with arrest rates. Mm -hmm. Instead of calling 911, you know, where where do people begin? Like, how would they be able to reach out to you or your organization or find uh, other organizations like it where they live? How would you suggest people go about doing that? yeah so the so that is the unfortunate thing is it's kind of stuck in a catch twenty two in most major cities and counties, one there's either no mental health response unit or there is an officer who's delegated to be the mental health guy in the, on the force right mm-hmm. you know this is the one who's done the most mental health training they forward the problem to him and he handles it so what this does is one if there is a mental health response unit in a county or something similar to it there people don't know the number it's not as widely circulated as 911 is and when you're in the middle of a crisis your first thought isn't to think let me google and find an alternative your first thought is to call the number that is kind of you've been trained to call right um second 
there's a lot of organizations like Rise Up. Um, Rise Up is actually no longer around. We we dismembered about a few months ago. We're in the we're restructuring at the moment, but who are fighting to kind of bring education and awareness and create law around this. But we are not the mental health response units ourselves. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's there's like this there's this lack of public education, um, even in cities where mental health response units do exist. So I think. You know, the we have to hold our cities and counties responsible for if they do have these these kind of services to promote them as much as they do the police and promote them as much as they do 911, right? Because, you know, there's also, we have a statewide um, Georgia response unit, which helps find the mental health police liaison in your county. And the number is extremely, you know, it's not something that people can just easily memorize. It's not easily found via a Google search. It's not on any police websites. It's not on any county websites. It's just through, like, tons of Googling that you finally find this number. Mm-hmm. So I think holding our cities and counties accountable for promoting these alternatives that they're creating because they spend all time and money and effort marketing the police as the number one responders to everything. hmm I mean, even on a, a deeper level, it shows this kind of, uh, what's a small word, uh, just this, this mindset, right, of police. So, like, when on cartoons, for example, when your cat is stuck up in a tree, you call the police. When, yeah. when you're locked out of your car, you call the police. When you have a mental health crisis, you call the police. When you're just taught when you stub your toe or anything goes wrong, the police is the first one to call. And the fact that we don't mm-hmm. question that, Right, we don't question that as a society. Why, during a suicidal episode, am I calling an armed officer? The fact that we don't even question that should should come into play in this whole conversation, um, because it is a lot larger than just mental health response units. It's the idea that police are our first responders to everything. Mhm, mhm. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts, which is why I'm saying mhm a lot and. <laughs> That's right. Feel free to feel free to chime in. I want to hear your thoughts. (laughs) I just, you know, um, my son is uh, bipolar, and uh, I'm thinking back to you know his mid-teens and stuff like that when you know Mm -hmm. um, we were dealing with a dual diagnosis, so bipolar, but he was also uh, using um, prescription drugs and illegal Mm -hmm. drugs and what have you uh, to to self-medicate. Um, and I remember being told by a therapist that, um, you know, the best hope that I had was for him to get arrested and to go to prison. Um, and fast forward, you know, almost, what, nine years later, and uh, that's pretty much where he is, you know. So mm-hmm. it's uh, it, it, it's beyond frustrating. It pisses me the fuck off. I'll, I'll just put it that way. Um, because, you know... Like you said, we do have the resources in the community, um, mm-hmm. and you know we we don't have the awareness, or there's not the you know public education campaigns to um, that are happening in schools at you know uh, community mm-hmm. centers and things like that. In the same way that they bring in you know police officers to talk to little kids, which, you know, really should upset people, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. why would you want a cop coming into your school talking to your kid, and it's like, (laughs) 
do you know how this works? Instead of having a social worker who is trained exactly. in these things to, you know, but we devalue social work as a profession in general and the work that they do we see is sort of, you know, tangential. And in a lot of cases, to be fair, you know, um, their social work is also part of much of the carceral apparatus that we're critiquing yep. and, and talking Definitely. about uh, here as well. So, you know, I think that, um, I mean, I don't have the answers. And if I did, I would, you know, um, I'm not sure what, you know, I would have a lot to power. Um, <laughs> but, um, now, I mean, I'm also trying to think of this in terms of, you know, how folks um, in their communities, if they're listening to, you know, they're listening to the podcast right now and they want to know, all right, where do I begin today, right? What do I do? How can I do what Devin is doing? Is that something as easy as, you know, perhaps picking up the phone and reaching out to, you know, some uh, an organization in their community perhaps that um, mm -hmm. is doing similar work? Is it finding maybe a couple of mental health professionals who are willing to volunteer and creating, I don't know, um, text message group where they can just say, look, there's this thing that's going on. Maybe mm -hmm. we can pass out flyers in our own community or, I don't know. I mean, it's like maybe I'm asking us to brainstorm here some creative ways that people might be able to get started uh, in doing this right. or, you know, maybe you have yeah. um, some thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely, you know, I try not to have rhetoric without proposing alternatives um, and, and solutions. So I, I think the number one first step, and it sounds basic and cliche as hell, but it's literally just to know what to do in a mental health crisis, whether it's your own or someone else's. Um, just know what to do. So the first step that me and my group of friends, who are mostly organizers but are just regular-ass people, is, you know, when someone in the circle or someone we know um, is having a crisis, like the schizophrenic episode I mentioned earlier, we call each other. We're the very first people we call, right? Because we all, we all have had de-escalation training, and we've, or at least read up and, and know in theory what to do to an extent as much as we can as just regular people, right? So the first step is you and your circle of people caring enough to just get educated. And that sounds basic as hell, but it's just pretty straightforward. Um, the second step is whatever city or county you're in is looking up and researching what services already do exist and how you can make them better. So if you live somewhere where, let's say, there is a mental health response unit, but they arrive with an armed officer on the spot, one, find out who to talk to and try and start a campaign to make it just a singular mental health response unit um, that doesn't arrive with an officer and or how to promote that program. Because as I said earlier, there are a lot of programs in different counties and cities that people aren't just aren't aware about. Mm -hmm. And then three, three, you, you already touched on this, is find the mental health professionals in your area who care and who are dedicated. It's often as simple as a Google search, you know, um, type in your county's name and different therapists and counselors and response um, professionals will come up. So like here in Atlanta, for example, we had a few professors from the Morehouse Medical School with history of researching racism in the field of medicine and, and therapy who reached out to Rise Up last year and helped us put together kind of a community plan packet. 
And what this was, was we created an email list of all the people who care, including mental health professionals, organizers, activists, and just regular civilians. We got people to sign up on the list through their phone number and their email. And this was any update to the mental health response unit in Atlanta, any protest or organizing we were having, any information we needed to blast out through email, we used that list server to do that. And what this created, it just generated people thinking, it generated ideas. We would have people responding to us, um, telling us, you know, they can do mental health patrol on certain days. We had some people asking if we could have a massive group text message to, to put mental health alerts in the text message to get emergency alerts if one of us has a, a brother or cousin or wife or someone who's going through a mental health crisis. So it really has to be community-based. Um, mm-hmm. And this is why the idea of getting police and armed officers out of it is so important, because we know that officers are antithetical to community-based solutions. <laughs> an armed mm-hmm. officer is one person or two people with a gun who arrives, right? So that that's extremely divisive to any community organizing, community planning. So those are pretty much my four key points of advice for that. And I've got to tell you, I love the I love the basic stuff. I think that that's the thing that you know also resonates with uh, with people when mm-hmm. you know they're thinking about you know what to do, right? Because right. we talk about this in very you know abstract and lofty terms and very big terms, and you know mm-hmm. like okay po- at the policy level and things like that which seems so disconnected from, you know, what a lot of people feel that they can do in their daily lives, you know, uh, with each other, right? Because mm-hmm. it's like when you're dealing with this stuff in your own home, you know, it's like you don't have a whole hell of a lot of time to start exactly. researching, you know, the policy agenda and who's involved in getting into that. And, you know, mm-hmm. we can we can debate that. Um, another day, but I think that the first point that you, uh, you know, put out right there, and it's something that, you know, I've been thinking about a lot more lately um, for so many reasons, but, you know, like you said, call each other, right? And it's like checking in with other uh, folks in your circle and having that network. And I think that, you know, one of the things that carcerality does to us, and I'm thinking carcerality in very broad terms, not just, mm-hmm. you know, prisons themselves, but, you know, the entire prison industrial complex. Right, the police you know, state um, as a whole. The police state, right, um, and, mm-hmm. and even bigger than that, carcerality is that it, it isolates us. So having, you know, even one other person that you can call that can be there for you, I think is such an important um Thing. And in uh, the second point that you mentioned about, you know, um, that I think is really important to emphasize here is that you said, you know, you're just regular people, right? That yeah. you don't mm-hmm. need to have, you know, it, yes, we want, you know, professionally trained folks, but people in the community can do the reading and can train themselves that this isn't necessarily rocket science that we can just, you know, look learn some de-escalation tactics, do some reading, mm-hmm. talk about these things together and figure out, okay, how do we, you know, how do we bring this person in and give right. them, you know, what it is that they need in a crisis? And I don't believe that you need a gun 
to make that happen. I don't think you need to be in a blue uniform to, you know, make that happen no. at all. Um, and I think I, that those I are... I think, two... um, to your point, um, I, I'm just a very, very, very firm believer in community-based organizing. And I think as organizers, we often want to have this grand solution and master plan, mm-hmm. and we want mm-hmm. to have extremely specific tactical you know, ways to take down these overarching systems of domination. When in reality, it's as basic as educating yourself and the people around you. And it's as basic as being educated. Um, Mm -hmm. A really good example is the recent case of a a young young student from Georgia Tech named Scout who was shot and killed by a campus police officer about two weeks ago. And um, they were an activist in the LGBT community, very well-known activists on campus, um, mm-hmm. but they suffered from from bipolar and depression and were having a manic episode, right? And they were wielding a very small pocket knife and the officers shot multiple rounds and killed them after just a few minute confrontation on campus. Mm-hmm. So this is a perfect example of, you know, maybe had we had a community put together that saw, one might have saw Scout's mental health slipping or saw signs that they weren't doing okay, or that while that was going on, we had a slew of people who were texting each other in the community, holding themselves accountable to get to the scene or to get to Scout's place and to just try and step in and de-escalate. Because what it was, was one, the campus officer was armed with a gun, a gun Mm -hmm. and pepper spray and a baton, no taser, just those three items. Um, So one, that's the first problem. Two, the second problem is that we as a community failed Scout and have to hold ourselves accountable for having implemented no form of community help for that kind of situation, right? And as an organizer, I'm always a fan of holding myself accountable, right? And it sucks, but it's the reality of it. Um, So I like to, you know, think of how that would have turned out different if, like you said, we focused on talking to each other and we focused on getting educated on what to do in those situations because I know a lot of organizers and people on Georgia Tech's campus are asking the same questions of what could we have done. Well, the first step, mm-hmm. the first step is just simple. It's educating and learning. Yeah, and uh, as a former college professor um, and someone who had, you know, been mentioning for, you know, the last seven years and noticing um, anecdotally, Mm -hmm. um, you know, what was happening in my own courses and and what have you with students, quite literally walked students over to the, uh, to mental health, you know, student mental health services Mm -hmm. uh, myself. And in a handful of cases, you know, dropped everything and, you know, took them over there and said, I can't let you go home. Uh, because I'm worried about what might happen. I don't want you going back to your dorm room. And I have, you have to say this because, you know, the university forces you into this position. Mm -hmm. And again, when we think of carcerality and, you know, um, the militarization of communities, we also need to think about the militarization of college campuses as part of that. And that's not something that we spend a whole lot of time talking about And, and having had those experiences where, you know, I've sat in the mental health services office um, waiting for students to be seen because I didn't want them to leave. And I said, you know, Mm -hmm. um, things were at a very strange place with how things are going here. 
and universities are in this place where, you know, they don't want the liability. They don't want to, you know, no provost or president wants to be making the phone call um, to any parent to say that, you know, something right. horrible happened to their children or that their children did something to other. And all of that stuff, especially after the Virginia Tech incident um, a number of years ago, you know, has mm-hmm. really changed the um, the response on college campuses. And I think that that's something also, you know, um, that really, wh- when I saw that story um, come out, um, you know, uh, I had so many different feelings that bubbled mm-hmm. up, um, in part because it, every college, you know, every university does have mental health services on campus. Unfortunately, what you also have is uh, campus police on every college Mm -hmm. and university campus. And if if someone is believed to be a threat to themselves or to others, and they use that as the pretext to, you know, basically call in the cops immediately, the cops have to be Mm -hmm. called in first. And yep. and we need to think about the implications of those policies um, for, you know, how we respond differently going forward in light of what happened with Scout. Because I think that, Definitely. you know, if, if we don't talk about that part of it, um, we're, we're failing, um, we're failing again, right? We're failing again. Mm-hmm. And it was, I had a, I had a conversation with someone about this, you know, who was deeply touched and, and moved by what happened um, with Scout. And we are frustrated in so many ways. And RAs, professors, uh, university staff, and everyone else have been brought into the fold of, you know, the militarization of communities in this country. And that's not something that, you know, particularly on a college campus, gets a whole heck of a lot of pushback because the response Mm -hmm. is, well, we need to think about the greater, and I'm using, you know, giant scare quotes here, the greater community. Yeah, yeah. And I will Um, say um, just real quick on the subject of Scout and what happened at Georgia Tech, the students of Georgia Tech have been very revolutionary in their response to what occurred. Um, So you can Mm -hmm. actually you know, just Google it, go online and find it. But they have issued demands to the school and have been leading protests and actions asking, basically demanding that officers be disarmed, all campus officers be disarmed, and that that was the main um, campus officers be disarmed, the officer who shot and killed scouts be fired. And there was just a few more really great, you know, more revolutionary um viewing the system of police officers on campuses as a whole is how they mm-hmm. how they form their demands. And I just think that's really beautiful and, and really great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And leave it to students, right, to always have to lead the charge on this, right? Yep, um, yep, yep. Yeah. That concludes part one of our discussion with Devin Springer. In part two, we talk about his hip-hop scholarship and pedagogy touch on his work with the Rodney Project, and talk about his art and poetry.